2: AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled.
1: visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
0: Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. This episode might make you hungry. It might make you hangry. If you hate ketchup, it might indeed make you angry. Shout out to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. They call me Ben. (laughs) They call me Ben and we've got a, uh, no, we've got what may well be
1: the first episode of a continuing series here today. A saga, even perhaps. Mm. Uh, my question to you, though Ben, is: Will this episode make me hungry? It may indeed. It may indeed. What's the difference between hungry and hangry? No, I think hungry is just like a cutesy, stylized uh, way of uh, texting someone that you're you're hungry. Ah, yes, plaintively so. I imagine, indeed. <laughs> it's you know, it's no
0: secret, folks. We love. Food on Ridiculous History. Uh, some of uh, some of mine, I think some of all of our uh, favorite episodes are about weird food history. And, you know, if you think our on-air banter about food is uh, a lot, maybe, you should hear us when the mics aren't rolling and we're just hanging out getting lunch or something. This is a continuing series on the history of condiments because, uh, honestly, we read a lot about it Way too much already outside of work. We couldn't think of a better way to start than with the, at times, controversial protagonist of all things American condiments, ketchup. Do you have ketchup in your house, Noel? Yeah, I
1: do. Um, you know, it's actually, I, I, I like to put it on uh, hot dogs, mm-hmm. um, which I know Chicagoans uh, would uh, frown upon. And they hate it. Um, I like a good mix of yellow mustard and ketchup on a, on a dog. Uh, I like uh, ketchup as a dipper for French fries. I also really like it as a uh, an ingredient for barbecue sauce. Yeah, 100%.
3: You guys cool if I tell a catch-up story real quick? Please do. Good Lord, please. So a couple years ago, uh, you know, we're all, me and my buddies are all big Atlanta baseball fans. And we were up at Wrigley Field in Chicago to see, you know, Atlanta play the Cubs. And it was really, you know, fun, exciting and stuff. But one day we were at uh, Millennium Park, you know, downtown Chicago. The Bean. Yeah, yeah, we were at the Bean. Uh, and we are walking around and, you know, of course, we got some Chicago dogs. And I remember I was there with my buddy Phil who uh, hates tomatoes, but for some reason likes ketchup. And he's sitting, there, not sitting there, he's standing there with a vendor, arguing with the vendor, like trying to get ketchup. He's like, he's like, give me some goddamn ketchup. And the uh, the vendor's like, ketchup is disgusting. Take (laughs) these whole tomatoes on your hot dog instead. I just want to point that out because it's kind of a, it's interesting. I, I get ketchup is more than just tomatoes. That's no, what we'll discuss it's, today. It's, but, it's
1: very yeah. divisive in Chicago. Like, yeah. uh, they're anti-ketchup on hot dogs. As, as you may well know, a Chicago dog is mustard. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is the exclusive condiment in addition to sport peppers. Mm-hmm. Um, a relish of some sort of very, like, neon green relish. A poppy seed bun. A slice of tomato. And a whole pickle, which is the only part that I can't abide but other than that, I love a Chicago dog, and I really do think it's the best form yeah, of dog.
0: It's got to be all beef as well. Right. That's the thing. I'm also interested in the lamb Icelandic hot dogs. Maybe that's mm. an episode for another day. Hot dogs. I love well, lamb.
1: Yeah. I like talking about Iceland. Yeah. There we go. Well, and the thing, you know, to your point, Max, um, you know, what we'll find too is that uh, the, the ketchup and tomatoes couldn't be much more Extricable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like ketchup is to tomatoes what grape flavoring is to grape. I really just, you don't really get much tomato flavor from ketchup at all. It's just kind of its own thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who would prefer the fresh tomato approach to ketchup, just like there are a lot of people who hate grape flavored stuff, but love actual grapes. I've got to tell you, doing research for this episode was. Awesome, because it finally allowed me to corral a bunch of unrelated, irrelevant facts. Today, ketchup is no fooling in around uh, a little less than 97% of homes throughout the United States as of 2014, and that number is held steady for quite a while. Uh, it's thrown on everything. A lot of people don't know this, but uh secret of Thai restaurants often is that ketchup is used as an ingredient, and you might not know it. If you haven't seen how the pad thai gets made, of course, a lot of people don't like ketchup associated with pad thai, but people are sensitive about condiments. Some folks hate ketchup. Some folks say, you know, ketchup is a child's condiment, right? Because it's so sweet. Some love it, but it is often the first condiment young kids in the U.S. get introduced to. And a lot of people, you know, you think of ketchup, you think, okay, how old can it be? But today we are going to explore the real story of ketchup, the real origin story. Modern ketchup wasn't invented until the early 1800s, but it starts way, 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 way before the world knew about tomatoes.
1: Well, I'm hoping, too, that we'll uh, shed some light on the different spellings of the condiment. Ketchup stylized as, you know, uh, K-A-T-C-H-U-P. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. Versus cat soup, K-C-A-T-S-U-P.
0: Yes yes okay all right yes you're on to something here so okay if we want to talk about where ketchup comes from we gotta just forget tomatoes we'll introduce them in a second Tomatoes didn't get across the oceans from South America until the 1500s or so uh, which is why a lot of you know you so a lot of people associate Italian cuisine with tomatoes right but that wasn't a thing in the 1400s and even after Europeans knew about tomatoes which they sometimes called love apples they wouldn't mess with them cuz they yeah yeah true <laughs> story they they thought uh tomatoes were poisonous the roots of ketchup which have nothing to do with tomatoes start all the way back in
1: southern china As mm-hmm. far back as 300 bce in fact where they were already experimenting with Flavor in some very interesting ways, typically doing ferments. You know, we know uh, there are certainly there's certainly a a kind of modern hipster sort of scene for fermented foods, Mm -hmm. everything from kimchi to pickled vegetables to whatever it might be. And if you've looked into the history of fermenting it really is absolutely ancient. Um, So there were all of these different fermented pastes that were being developed, let's just say, uh, back as far as 300 BCE using things like Awful, you know, meat uh, byproducts that maybe weren't necessarily tasty on their own, but surely there's something we could do with these if we just, you know, bury them in the dirt and leave them for, you know, six months and then see what happens. There was a lot of see, there's a lot of see what happens mentality. Things like fish entrails and, of course, staple crops like soybeans.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. This, uh, <laughs> This stuff is fish sauce. Fish sauce is hugely popular throughout the Pacific, right? And I don't know about you guys, I love a good fish sauce as well. Uh, I've got some of my own favorites. But this fish sauce was called kochep or getikup, which I know sounds a little like Black Lodge backwards speech, but that's spelled G-E-T-H-C-U-P or K-O-E-C-H-E-U-P. And this comes from people who spoke the Southern Min dialect. They loved this stuff because you could store it on long ocean voyages. But this wasn't the only kind of fermented fish stuff. There's a lot of parallel thinking in the world of food, especially when people have access to the same ingredients. So other places, other communities and civilizations that had maritime trade, they also made fermented fish things, paste, and sauces. Garum was a fish sauce in the ancient Mediterranean. It was like the fish-flavored ketchup of the ancient Egyptians, Romans, and Greeks. But Europeans, the ones who were, you know, making contact with the Pacific, they didn't really know about this when they found the Chinese sauce. In fact, Europeans probably, after a while, forgot it was from China at all because it went from, let's see, it went from southern China to Indonesia and the Philippines, and that's where British traders found it in the 1700s, and it had a nice bite. It lasted, again, for long, arduous sea voyages. Why why wouldn't you love it? So they took samples home, and they promptly began to tinker with the recipe. We're getting into a touchy subject here, Noel, because we're talking about traditional British cuisine, which isn't for everybody, but I'm just saying, I can't blame them for getting excited about something with, you know, a little more flavor
1: to it. And lots of fish. Yeah, I want to point out really quickly uh, a question that I had that maybe folks out there might have. Is garum related to the Malaysian, Indonesian, you know, Indian uh, word garam? Like oh, garam yeah. masala, which is a spice blend. Um, garam is apparently the uh, word from that part of the country for salt. Um, mm-hmm. So that spice blend, you know, is is kind of meant to impart a saltiness to it, and obviously fish has that as well. But a book called "The Fisheries of the Oriental Region" claims that this is just kind of a, more of a strange coincidence mm. uh, rather than an etymological shared root. Nice.
0: Clearing it up.
1: We're going to clear up
0: a lot of stuff, you know. So the British folks loved this because they thought it was a new interesting thing to add to the flavor profile of their foods. Still no tomatoes though. Because remember, a lot of people thought these were absolutely poisonous. The 1700s are a weird golden age for ketchup. They called it spiced sauce. And uh, they applied this fermentation process to every kind of ingredient they could get their hands on. If you look back at old school cookbooks, you'll see people were making ketchup out of oysters, mushrooms, mussels, walnuts, celery, fruits like peach ketchup, plum ketchup, which doesn't seem that weird. I just don't know if it's for me necessarily. And they would the way they would do it is they would boil this stuff down until it was kind of syrupy and they would put they would salt it and they would just leave it alone for a long period of time. And then you got kind of what uh you got what National Geographic describes as a flavor bomb in a <laughs> great article by Jasmine Wiggins in 2014.
1: Well, one of the most important qualities of ketchup today is that it is what is considered shelf stable. Mm -hmm. So you'll notice that like, you know, at a lot of uh, restaurants and diners, the ketchup just sits out on the table and they'll just refill these bottles and maybe they store them in in refrigeration overnight. Uh, I I don't know, but um, it can sit out, you know, all day um, without worry about collecting bacteria or whatever, as long as it's airtight and that's because of this uh, this process, using the salt essentially as a preservative.
0: Mm, hmm
1: And as,
0: as we look at this period of time, fellow ridiculous historians, you might guess already, if you just looked at this stuff in a little ramekin, it is way different from the Heinz or Hunt's ketchup you find, uh, shelf-stable and preserved, like you said, at grocery stores today. One recipe from 1736 said, here's how you make ketchup. I swear to God, this is true. He said, take two quarts of really strong stale beer and half a pound of anchovies and boil it and then leave it alone. I don't know if I want that on a hot dog. This episode
1: of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated
0: drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map.
1: And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football. Game, I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the cars called to when they get in, and then I can track their progress to and from their destination.
0: That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details.
1: Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details.
2: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living. Assisted Living and Memory Care Services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.
0: Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better?
1: Oh, boy, have I ever been. and more of everything.
0: Limited time special offers a week at AvalonWaterways.com.
1: I don't know either, but you know what that does sound a little bit more like is something akin to like Worcestershire sauce. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, um, yeah. which you obviously can use uh, in, in different ways. You can use it as an ingredient or you can, you know, put it on fries like malt vinegar, for example. Oh, I love malt um, vinegar. Yeah, it's great. But I mean, we're getting into this area where there was a sort of version of this that would have been more regional, like every kind of, you know, area maybe had their own version of this stuff, depending on the uh, the ingredients that were available to them.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what people had to do. Remember, there weren't really global supply chains for fresh food or ingredients. The only way you're eating fresh fish is if you live near a place where you can get fresh fish. So I have to pause and just ask a question right now. And just let's go through and name some of those different catch, non-tomato ketchup varieties and tell me let's tell each other together if you would try them all right number 1 lemon ketchup yes or no i feel like it could go with some stuff
1: i need more information i <laughs> lately have been That's fair. i i lately have been using a lot of lemon like i'll i'll cook rice uh-huh. and use lemon zest and like it. squeeze of a lemon in yeah. there and i really like the brightness that a lemon can add to a to a recipe but do i want a lemon sauce that sounds more like something you'd put on a a custard or, a, you know, uh-huh. a, a cake rather than something you'd put with something savory because uh, lemon can be a very strong flavor. So even when I put it in the rice, a whole giant pot of rice will maybe only get the zest of half a lemon and the juice of half a lemon. So, you know, I would assume that that, that lemon ketchup by its very nature of what the, the the condiment kind of is would be very concentrated and probably a little much.
0: Yeah, I would. I would. Um, I I use lemon all the time, lemons and limes when I'm cooking stuff. Uh, just for that that bright citral note. But I also go a little slow with it. I've done homemade preserved lemons. They've got a kick as well for lemon ketchup. I would think maybe seafood it would go nice with like a a seafood dish. But you probably want to treat it like concentrated coffee and and somehow dilute it. All right, walnut ketchup. What do we think?
1: You know it's interesting it, this this also makes me think of like different kinds of bitters, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, that you put in cocktails. Mm-hmm. So there is like walnut bitters, you know, and there's like lavender bitters and different ones like that. And that's also a very strong, concentrated kind of additive that you'd really just want to put a couple of drops of in your in your cocktail. I do like the flavor of walnut and I like uh, like walnut dressing, you know, for Thanksgiving or uh, things that it it adds a real umami flavor, which leads me to uh, mushroom ketchup is one that I would definitely be down. I've had it. It's pretty good. I had it. I I I I couldn't imagine that it wouldn't be. Yeah. And then, of
0: course, as any uh, mycologist can assure you, people who study fungus, (laughs) um, it depends on the type of mushroom, right? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Oyster ketchup, I would try it. I don't know if it'd be a go-to. I've had banana ketchup before. I found it pretty sweet. But that's what people were doing. They were making it with whatever they had available and trusted already as a food source. Here's an oyster ketchup recipe that... Uh, <laughs> that Actually, let's let's give like three historic things. The oyster ketchup recipe seems like Pretty mm, inefficient,
1: yeah. Uh, this recipe that you're referencing, Ben, from the 1700s called for 100 oysters.
0: Isn't that a lot?
1: Does that That's seem like insane. a lot? It seems like overkill. Uh, it seems like you, you could accomplish it with fewer than 100, but uh, wh- who am I to say? Uh, mixed with only three pints of white wine, lemon peels, um, with mace and cloves, which I'm not crazy about, just in general, that yeah. those flavors. Not my bag. Um,
3: I'm gonna say, how much are you using this though? I mean, a hundred oysters, and you're gonna have this for a while. It's not like you're gonna be making this like once a week. So
1: oysters are just such a strong flavor. I just don't understand why you would need so many. I, you know? I think you need two hundred. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, that is how you make concentrate. Usually, it's yeah. with like a shit ton of the stuff. And then you're you're boiling it down to its essence, you know, and making like this literal kind of tincture that, that just within it is contained. The power of 200 oysters.
0: Ah, yes. That is a uh, superpower of an obscure mm-hmm. comic book hero. 200 and oyster Max man.
1: Williams.
0: <laughs> Max Williams. That's his real name. You heard, heard it here first, folks. There was commemorative catch-up. Uh, The Prince of Wales ketchup was made from elderberries and anchovies. Jane Austen was down with ketchup. In addition to writing Pride and Prejudice, she liked to talk about how cool mushroom ketchup was. But again, this stuff was more, it was thinner than the ketchup you see today. It was dark and it was often added into like soups and sauces. So to our point about concentration
1: of flavor, this was diluted in other things. More like a hot sauce, maybe. You might dash into something, you know, rather than
0: dip. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know where it is in terms of concentration compared to say sesame oil, which I think is amazing. And I probably use too much of it, but
1: my girlfriend
0: is disgusted
1: by the smell of sesame oil. Really? Oh, yeah, I, I get it. I Good mean, to it, know it is strong. I cook for you guys, yeah. Well, it is strong, and it, it's I wouldn't necessarily use it as liberally as you might. Olive oil, you know, it's more of flavoring than, like, an oil to cook with. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah, I, I so maybe I've gone overboard with it in the past. But I got a really great um, little kit from Momofuku mm-hmm. that included uh, a little bottle of toasted sesame oil, their restaurant-grade soy sauce, and um, a restaurant, what they call restaurant-grade rice wine vinegar, and then a bunch of their chili crisp condiments that are just fantastic. And the toasted sesame oil, you know, the bottles are, they have those little little dabbers, little dabber yeah, kind yeah. of thing. So it really just it dispenses in drops rather than like filling a pan with it to like fry something in.
0: That's the way to do it, to illustrate the picture for, for you guys. I, I know I sent you my uh, <laughs> my survivalist level collection of noodles. I have too much. But I also have like, a little gas can, basically, of sesame oil. And uh, it's not the first one I've gone through. But you can make sesame ketchup or sesame-flavored ketchup, which I've done, and it slaps. I have no regrets. But uh, now I think it's time to introduce the star of our show. This guy's been waiting For the right moment to stroll onto the stage, and that moment has arrived. Let's hear it for today's protagonist. You might know it, you might love it, you might hate it. Ridiculous historians. Today's story: the tomato.
4: A Jersey tomato met an Idaho potato on a New York Central train. They no sooner left the station when they started conversation. The Jersey tomato and the Idaho potato had no reason to complain. Going west, they got to kissin' through the fields of golden grain. That Jersey blush and country smile put stars in those idle eyes. And that old coach made every mile seem like it was paradise. The wheels were going and the whistle was blowin' to the tune of love's refrain tomato married the potato now they have a tom with a little choo-choo tray.
1: this is yeah this is where i used kept... to yeah when i was a kid i used to hate tomatoes with a passion and my mom loved them and would just eat them by the slice you know just fresh maybe a little once... salt Yeah, a little salt and pepper maybe, but once presented me uh, with it at the dinner table with a plate of sliced tomatoes, and wouldn't let me leave until I'd eaten one, and I did, and then I also proceeded to vomit all over the table. Oh, geez. She never tried that again, but now I love them. I still won't really eat them on their own. I need them to be salted and and seasoned and on Mm -hmm. a sandwich or, you know, uh, stewed or whatever it might be, Uh, but I'm not nearly as averse to them as I once was.
0: That sense memory can be tough, Uh, and also uh, ketchup. Ketchup that was very pepper heavy was a common favorite during the Civil War. It even it's ketchup has such a weird history. So the tomato, though the tomato is to ketchup today what as like it's what electric guitars are to rock music. You can have ketchup without tomatoes, just like you can have rock music without electric guitar. Obviously, but for a lot of people, these seem like fundamental ingredients to either creation. I think that's a fair analogy and. We mentioned tomatoes were considered poisonous by Europeans for a long time. Historians suspect that may have something to do with the acidity of a tomato. It was messing with the lead pewter plates. And so you would you would see uh, this lead, of course, gives rise to lead poisoning, but you would see the tomato touching a plate and it might mess with the appearance and, and so on or people might get sick. So they avoided it until... The first known tomato ketchup recipe appears. It's 1812. There's a scientist and horticulturalist named James Meese. He calls tomatoes love
4: apples. Oh, please, mister, don't you touch me, tomato. Please don't you touch the tomato. Touch me, yummy pumpkin potato. Goodness sake, don't touch me, tomato.
0: And he put
1: booze in his, no. That's right. He put tomato pulp and like a secret spice blend and a bit of brandy, which I imagine would ultimately go on to be replaced with vinegar, which this recipe did not have, nor did it have sugar. But he was ahead of the curve um, because he first mentions this idea way back in 1804 before he even popularized the uh, the recipe. Yeah. And the... the- brandy part might be a
0: little bit shocking today, but there was a precedent because people had been, you know, like in those early, earlier recipes we named pre-tomato ketchup, people were putting white, white wine in there and stuff. Uh, shout out to Tim and Eric.
1: But, I, you know, I imagine they are still simmering this down, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. the alcohol content would, would be cooked out. Right the, it. it was more for the flavor and the preservative quality. Great point.
0: And I like that you also point out that he mentions the idea first in 1804. This is the reason food historians like Andrew F. Smith who wrote a book called Pure Ketchup, A History of America's National Condiment with Recipes. This is the reason Smith says Meese probably saw French Creole refugees from the Haitian Revolution making something like this sauce. He got the idea from somewhere, right? And if you, just based on You know, what what you had presented as that original recipe, Noel, it seems like this would be something almost closer to a spicy, like a marinara, a spicy tomato sauce, because it didn't have that stuff you're mentioning. Vinegar. Vinegar is the next key ingredient. Before vinegar was added in the mix, it was really difficult to preserve tomato-based sauces. They decompose. They break down too quickly. Even now, if you take a fresh tomato and you don't do any weird magic to it, uh, that tomato is going to rot pretty soon, right? I mean, you've seen it. Anybody who's bought fresh tomatoes, you put them somewhere, and then you're like, the countdown begins.
1: Yeah, even if it's just like in one little spot starts to get soft, you know. And, and the frugal gourmets among us surely have uh, encountered a tomato that was just experiencing a little bit of rot and maybe sliced off that side and used the intact parts. I'm not ashamed. To We've say all that done I've it. Done that. Yeah. Uh, but they are, you know, they're already kind of soft. And it's the kind of thing that when you're in the grocery store, when you're squeezing tomatoes, you want to know that it's not too soft because the softer it is when you get it. I mean, it, it is interesting how the when we, we talk about a fruit being ripe, That is also a term we use to describe a corpse that is rotting and beginning to stink. And the closer you get to peak ripeness is also the closer you get to the beginning of rottenness.
0: Yes, yes, well put. You can, of course, preserve tomatoes other ways. People can can tomatoes, but you can also preserve them by making ketchup. So until the preservation in the vinegar really hits. There's a problem with ketchup. You can't trust ketchup, uh, for at least a lot of uh, U.S. consumers say. Both the pro and the amateur ketchup makers were struggling to make sure you could still eat the stuff over time. This meant that there were all kinds of sketchy preservatives that were put into it to make up for the fact that sometimes they were using not the best tomatoes, right? You start with bad ingredients, you can get a bad dish. Sodium benzoate, coal tar, Mm. I know. Uh, And so a lot of people were distrustful of this. People had bought bad ketchup bottles before, so the Heinz Company takes the next step around 1876. They are the ones who make a formula that has tomatoes, brown sugar, salt, Like we said in the earlier example, a mixtape of various spices and distilled vinegar. Noel, this is also the company that introduces glass bottles. What a coup, because now, you know, you're like you're at the grocer or whatever. You're buying ketchup, and you want to go for the stuff that you can see before you buy it. So it's no longer caveat emptor. They also called it catsup, going to your original question earlier.
1: Mm, yeah, it really does just become kind of a branding play uh, to a certain degree. And by the way, Heinz, uh, another example um, similar to 3M, where they're filling a need for a thing that is now it has it, it's popular or the idea of it is popular or the need for it is is popular, but no one's cracked the code on it yet. And then they were essentially first to market with the most recognizable and successful version of a thing. And therefore also like uh, Henry Hines, who's the founder of Hines, great grandfather, something like that, of, of Teresa Hines Carey, John Carey's wife. So a, an absolute legacy, um, you know, American family um, with a massive, massive wealth.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Right. And here's the thing. They originally had called this stuff catsup. Heinz had. But what is the difference between catsup with a C and ketchup with a K? Well, they're just different terms referring to the same condiment. Everybody, I think, knows that at this point, but it's more complicated because there have been a lot of names referring to this stuff over the years. Quick list, just see if any of these give everybody a chuckle. Uh, warning, they get kind of susian here. There's chop, corn chop. Kitsip, cat soup, which sounds gross, cat shoop, kotpak, cut puck, cutpuck, kutchpuck, and more. That's just a list of a few. It's like a Willy
1: Wonka song after a certain point. It sure is. Um, and again, it's sort of like a, a, a word that was already kind of in the, the zeitgeist that then you just kind of have to create your own style on. And the spelling, sort of like cello tape versus scotch tape or whatever, you know, combining cellophane with tape and changing the letter, uh, if you get to it early enough, you can create a branding that then becomes the stand-in for, like, every other version of the thing.
0: Exactly, exactly. The ketchup by any other name, like a rose by any other name, would still taste as sweet. Hines did not start with just one recipe. He had several, let's call them drawing board attempts. Uh, one of the first recipes had allspice, cloves. I'm with you guys. I'm not a big clove fan. Uh, cayenne pepper, mace, and cinnamon. But then he he did a different approach, just for comparison or contrast, I should say. Uh, there's another recipe that had pepper, ginger, mustard seeds, celery, salt, horseradish, and brown sugar. So he was all over the place. You know, you got to try a bunch of different things, just like our pal from the story about Scotch tape. But there is something that always mystified me as a kid, and I I suspect I'm not alone in this. Heinz 57 ketchup. Does it mean there are 57 different types of ketchup or more? Does it mean it's the 57th product that old Henry J. Heinz made? No. By the time they started putting 57 on the bottles, they already had more than 60 different things they were making. The number 57 happens because... All right, here's the idea of the story. It's 1896 or so. Right before then, he is riding a train in New York City, and he sees this advertisement for a shoe store that says, we have 21 styles of shoes. And he thinks, oh, that's cool, specificity. So again, according to the lore, uh, and you can find this on the Heinz website too, he just sort of picked the numbers five and seven because uh they were he and his spouse's favorite numbers. They liked the sound of them. And he said he would later say, uh, I did this because, quote, the psychological influence of that figure and its enduring significance to people of all ages. So is he like a numerologist at this point?
1: <laughs> I think he <laughs> was just reading the tea leaves of, of, of commerce, uh, in many ways, or he was just a really smart kind of, uh, brander. And, and, uh, you know, I think having that number, it, it, it is interesting. It sort of reminds me of Baskin Robbins and their 31 flavors. And with that though, it makes a little more sense because it was a flavor for every day of the month.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that way makes way more sense. That's based on something other than, you know, what number I like five. Oh, I like the number seven. I think we're done here. That's kind of what happens. So this well, is also yeah. seven is
1: a cool looking number. It is as cool is five. <laughs> mm-hmm. Depending <laughs> they, on the font. It, yeah. And they do style it pretty nicely with the font. Like the the seven is very sharply drawn. You know, it really does have like a very striking look to it. And it's it's, it's just like a striking thing. 57. It's just, it's got it's got power to it, if you ask me. There's a
0: lot of power and specificity. That's why I love, uh, there's a lot of Asian food I love where there are numbers in in the name of the food. I'm a sucker for that because it, it sounds almost more scientific, you know? It sounds established, distinguished is the word I'm looking for.
1: Well, like a Chinese five-spice. Oh, yeah. For example, you know?
0: Yeah, or like a uh, three-cup chicken. Another great idea, but that's because you use roughly a cup of a different three different ingredients. But this is not Heinz's biggest breakthrough. That it's a marketing breakthrough to be sure. But one of his big breakthroughs was not using crap tomatoes. They used uh, riper tomatoes because they had more plentiful natural pectin. This helped with the quality and the preservation, but. Although it seems obvious now, people hadn't really thought about it at this time. And then as a result of this, over the years, ketchup becomes more and more popular throughout the U.S. and Europe. By 1905, Heinz alone has sold 5 million bottles of ketchup. And so many other people get into the mix and they're trying to differentiate themselves, which is why you have all those other silly, not quite ketchup names in history in the record and around this time too while all this is happening we see a sea change or we see a a condiment shift it becomes easier and easier to buy ketchup that doesn't seem poisonous or taste terrible and so people stop making it at home people started saying hey the homemade ketchup i make just doesn't doesn't taste right it's not as good so then, as a, as now, honestly, people have decided if you can buy shelf-stable ketchup, why would you go to all the problems of making it? As a result, U.S. folks purchase about, what is it, 10 billion ounces of ketchup every year. That's about
1: three bottles Insane. per person. Insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It reminds me of like on Great British Baking Show when they're like, we want you to make a digestive biscuit and everyone's like basically a digestive biscuit is is sort of the british equivalent of like a graham cracker kind of but usually the response is i've never made that before because no one would ever make that because it's much cheaper just to buy the branded ones from the store and they're better than the ones i would make and it's a pain in the butt so it really became you know yeah if you give people a choice that's affordable and higher quality or at least better tasting because it's not like you know exactly what's in it, especially when it comes to that uh, secret packet of uh, herbs and spices, then they're going to choose that most every time. Yeah, exactly. It goes
0: into convenience and consistency. And this is why now it's impossible. Well, it's virtually impossible to imagine ketchup being anything other than bright red and tomato despite the history we all know. And, I would say it's almost weird not to see ketchup in someone's house. And there are some restaurants where you wouldn't expect to find it, right? But most restaurants have some version, you know. You might go to a really, really fancy steakhouse that looks down on you for having ketchup with the steak. People are particular about that.
1: Well, like Donald Trump, for example, is infamous for liking his steaks well done, which is a travesty to any, you know, uh, steakhouse proprietor, you know, of note. And also with ketchup, there's jokes been made in plenty of TV shows and movies where you got some person, you know, fish out of water kind of story, going to a fancy restaurant and requesting ketchup to which the maitre d' or or waiter, you know, gasps and clutches their pearls.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Or very fancy Japanese steakhouses where you can only order, you know, one or two particular cuts of steak and it is only served with a dab of mustard. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're a Philistine. I think, you know, Noel Max, I think it's time for us to get a little bit into the science. So we've established that ketchup has these, the roots of ketchup, the predecessor, have these ancient origins. In the Netherlands, there's a sauce called Ketjap, uh, K-E-T-J-A-P. K- it's an Indonesian soy sauce, but when you pronounce the name, it's very similar to ketchup. And uh, if you look at how it's made now, you'll see it varies per brand and type. But in general, they do some of the same stuff. They wash tomatoes. They ground them up to a fine consistency. And while they're doing this, they remove some of the water. Water is an enemy of ketchup. And sadly, like 95% of a tomato is water. This episode of
1: Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers.
0: This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map.
1: And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football. Game, I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the cars called to when they get in, and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. And don't delay. Today you can
0: get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details.
1: Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details.
2: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living. Assisted Living and Memory Care Services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hey,
0: Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh,
1: boy, have I ever been. And more of everything.
0: Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting, too, because I mean, I I made the offhanded comment at the top of the show that to me, ketchup doesn't taste like a tomato at all. It's sort of like, you know, grape flavoring, not tasting like a grape, but there are tons of fresh tomatoes in a bottle of, of Heinz tomato ketchup. But it just kind of becomes its own thing. Uh, but to, to that point, 148 grams of tomatoes are used to make just 100 grams of the product. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe
0: that kind of answers our oyster question, too.
1: I mean, you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might. Uh, like, well, the oyster ratio was was a bit egregious. Higher, yeah. I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so not enough. Not enough. OK. All right. Well, old Max Oyster Williams is coming through. Uh, to maintain quality, I we're just gonna we're gonna get you an oyster subscription for Christmas, man. <laughs> so uh, you might think ketchup is a good way to use old or low quality tomatoes, but it looks like that's not the case here. If you want tomatoes for ketchup, you want to harvest them in their prime, and you want to get them from harvest to production in a really short amount of time. So. Big tomato ketchup brands will often have contracts with tomato growers and say like, okay, every season, every tomato season, you give us X amount of your crop, or maybe even all of it. And farmers will typically say yes to that if they can get good terms because that guarantees someone will buy the tomatoes. So if you look at the main two ingredients, we nailed them. We as society, it took a second, but the other two main ingredients, vinegar, sugar – you need these to preserve the ketchup. It's not just about the taste. You're making sure the tomato bit doesn't spoil, and it gets. In, we'll get into the science a little bit about water activity. So water activity is a thing that you need to know uh, to understand how food spoils. So low water activity means it's tougher for microorganisms to contaminate and uh,
1: consume food. Well, just, just think about, like, standing water, for example. Ooh. You know, you're going to get mosquitoes. It's going to start to smell if it's just sitting there. So, essentially, you know, water in a, a, a sealed environment is... The equivalent of standing water, you know, um, it's, it's obviously sealed, but it is going to make it more prone to growth of, uh, of microorganisms and bacteria and molds and things like that that um, are going to, you know, spoil the food. And the lower the water content, the less likely um, it will spoil in that way. So like a low water activity,
0: something close to zero means there's not much available water. A higher value, closer to one, means there's a lot. So when you're looking at pathogenic microorganisms, the stuff that makes you feel uh, poorly, stuff that makes you sick, then we see that those little buggers need a high water activity. And the water activity of a fresh tomato is very close to 1 because it contains so much water. But ketchup has a water activity closer to 0.93 thanks to that sugar and thanks to that salt. This is still high enough for a lot of microorganisms to grow. If you put enough salt and sugar into these things to stop all the growth, the ketchup wouldn't taste very good. So they started... Like, think of it. Think of these preservatives not as a wall stopping all microorganisms. Think of them as speed bumps that get higher, hurdles that the microorganism has to cross to grow. The next hurdle is the pH value. Low pH value means a food is ex- acidic. Tomatoes by themselves, acidic. Everybody knows. That's why, if you're making a tomato sauce and you want to reduce the acidity, you just pop a carrot in there while you're cooking it and take the carrot out. Bay leaf. Style. No way. Yes, way. Didn't yes, way, Ted.
1: Yeah. It's very interesting. So, w- with that being said, um, why isn't there like an acidic, super vinegary kick when you, you know, squirt some ketchup on a fry? You know what? It's because of that sugar. Those are sh- the oysters.
0: <laughs> and the oysters, Max, and the oysters. The sweetness of the sugar helps mitigate or hide the acidity of the vinegar. Nowadays, honestly, a lot of ketchup manufacturers will skip part of the process or they'll have their tomato harvesters take care of an initial step and they'll just buy tomato paste or puree and convert that into ketchup. That makes it easier. They just have to mix their own ingredients to make the recipe, cook it, cook it down and fill it into packaging. But now I think we need to talk about the color briefly off mic. In times past, I think we've we've talked about that weird period of time not too long ago here in the U.S. where different ketchup manufacturers were like, let's make it, what, green, purple?
1: Mm-hmm. Was that one? Yeah, it's bizarre. It was like, a, I think it was a Heinz thing. And I think you can still get them, maybe. But I just don't think, who asked for that? That's sort of the question there, you know? Like, who is this for? I guess kids, but... Even with kids, the red color is part of the comfort level. And it's sort of like if you drink a thing that you think is supposed to be Sprite, but then it turns out to be soda water. Right. It breaks your brain a little bit. So the expectation of what the color of ketchup is versus what the taste is, I think, is part and parcel of the whole experience. So when you change one of those uh, elements, it can throw the whole thing off psychologically. So it doesn't it doesn't uh, surprise any of us, I think, that multicolored ketchups didn't really take off. But as bright red as ketchup is, you would think that they were, you know, uh, stacking the deck a little bit. But in fact, because they are using such fresh tomatoes, limiting uh, exposure to air, which would prevent oxidation and therefore like browning of the tomatoes, it gets that color pretty honestly. Yeah, it does. Ketchup doesn't actually
0: need a bunch of additional colorants to be red. Use bright red tomatoes. You get a bright red ketchup.
4: In the garden was a red tomato Surrounded by some bush And to reach that red tomato You always have to push My red tomato My ripe tomato You can pick my tomato That is, if you have the right size stick
0: because of the lycopene that's part of the tomatoes that's what makes them red themselves and actually ketchup processors try not to use iron processing equipment because that can damage the red color they also try to prevent a lot of oxygen exposure because you know how um, apples freshly sliced can turn brown when Very they're quickly yeah yeah so tomatoes can turn brown if they're exposed to a lot of
1: oxygen and you know as they're being cut up. Uh, But this— Isn't there a way to prevent apples from turning brown by, like, putting a slice of lemon in with them or something like that? Or there's something that you can do to keep them from turning brown? Lemon juice, huh? I'm looking that up now. I think that's right. I think you're right. And also, weirdly, um, avocados, as we know, you know, go from being delightful and and, and bright green to turning brown very quickly, too. But if you keep the pit inside the half of the avocado you haven't used yet, it will— keep it's uh it's color.
0: Yeah. You can also do that by putting them in a brown paper bag. Isn't that mm-hmm. weird? Uh so <laughs> we're <laughs> so I hope uh someone is listening to this while they're cooking. Don't put ketchup in your pad thai. Just know that's a trick people do. We thought what better way to end today's episode by doing just some Tangents, a little bit of trivia. This is the kind of stuff that we find in our research that doesn't make it into the narrative but captivates Noel and Max and I so much. We want to tell you about it. There is a um retroactively applied reason for the Heinz 57 brand. They made a reason for it to exist, other than I like numbers. Uh, and it's this a Heinz spokesman a few years back told today food the way to get ketchup out of the bottle efficiently there's a sweet spot you know the the logo is kind of on the neck of the bottle what you have to do is put a firm tap where the bottle narrows pop it on that 57 logo and the ketchup comes out more easily i had never heard this did you ever heard of this i had not well we're full, and Max is shaking his head. No, guys, we can't. We can't regret the times we couldn't get to catch up. now, we just look forward to the future. And I tried this over the weekend, and it it does work a little better. Still not a hundred percent.
1: Another interesting thing you may be surprised we haven't mentioned already is that Heinz also invented, probably no surprise, the ketchup packet, the ubiquitous ketchup packet. And it makes sense because while, you know, certain types of places that are going for more of an old-timey vibe uh, and may even refill these you still use the glass bottles like diners and such, if you're working on a larger scale— It's probably more cost-effective and there'll be less like, uh, what's the word, breakage, literally, uh, if you get shipped just thousands of little individually wrapped ketchup packets. And Heinz figured out how to do that, creating that foil wrapper back in 1968. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you will occasionally see ones of those that have leaked, but it's much better to have a little bit of leakage from what is ultimately a tiny amount of the juice than shards of broken glass and gross, sticky ketchup, you know, all over a shipment because a glass bottle broke or multiple. 100%.
0: Also, a little more detail on that 97% statistic we kicked at the beginning. If every household had a 14 ounce bottle of ketchup, the combined weight of all the ketchup in the United States in those houses would be 54,000 tons, heavier than the Titanic. That's a lot of ketchup. I still, I'm thinking like I found different, different statistics for uh, how many pounds of ketchup people eat. I don't know if we can trust it all. So let's skip that part. But we can say, ending on a good note, as we love to do, ketchup might just be able to help you live a little bit longer because that lycopene The stuff that gives it that color has also been linked to reducing the risk of cancer.
1: And it it has the potential to turn you into a werewolf. Yes. Like a lycopene? Mm -hmm. Is that the same root as Uh, lycanthropy? Absolutely. Close enough.
4: I guess I
3: I do have one parting note for us. And it is, of course, the colored ketchups. I looked them up, they were blasting green and funky purple. Oof. And I'll tell you right now, I found a photo of the funky purple fries, and I have to like turn it off periodically because I don't know if you guys have seen me over here, but I've been uh yeah, I not saw. feeling so not feeling so well because it is like the most disgusting thing I've ever. Why seen would my you call
1: life. it funky? Call it, yeah, royal. that implies that it has spoiled, you right? Know? Yeah. Call it royal yeah. ketchup or something. What's the other one? What's the uh, green? The blasting the, the adjective? green, blasting <laughs> green.
3: They, they didn't even get like
0: <sighs> blasting green, sounds like a euphemism for throwing up.
3: Yeah, that, that's what I'm that's what I'm about to do from looking at this funky purple on some fries right here.
0: Mm. Funky purple, Not cool. Yeah, it sounds oh. way more like the street name. They of didn't the even
1: get alliteration
0: done.
2: And, and
1: and yet, and not, not to ruin ketchup for anybody, but it really does go to show the psychological power uh, of ketchup and, and, and the legacy hold that it has on our kind of psyche, because so many people are, like, averse to anything that even resembles blood, and yet they'll fully go to a baseball game and slather a basket of fries with what essentially looks like
0: blood. Mm-hmm. Branding is so important. That's why uh, that's why Coca Cola is never going to change that red color, even though people don't associate red with a uh, satisfying drink unless it's soda. Uh, so. Here we here we're gonna call it today in the first part of our ongoing mission to explore the history of condiments. We wanna hear what you think, folks. What should we cover next? Actually, we want to hear from you, but I, I also particularly want to hear from you, Noel, and you, Max. Should we do the should we do the basic thing and go for mustard, like yellow and, and brown mustard, or should we should we switch it up and find a different condiment?
1: I don't know, man. Like, I, I, think, yeah, hot sauce is great. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I do think mustard is neat because it occupies a similar kind of American, you know, staple condiment uh, realm as, as ketchup. Uh, but obviously, we know that you know the, there are fancy mustards, and and that is really something that ketchup doesn't have. So while there's the basic yellow mustard, French's or whatever it might be, there's also like Dijon mustard and, and, and Grey Poupon. And then like really fancy mustards you'd get like on a charcuterie board or, yeah. you know, more bespoke mustards. So I vote we just follow it right up with Mustard.
3: I will counter. I think, I mean, this is from the years of restaurant management. We got to go with the godfather of all condiments, which is the incredibly diverse of mayo.
0: Oh, mayonnaise
3: is in so many things mm-hmm. and people don't want to think about it. But I have a buddy who to this date will not eat mayo and will just slather honey mustard on everything. And I don't oh. want to. I've told him many times, like, you know what the primary ingredient of honey mustard is, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's also aioli, which is what oh. you call mayo when you want people to pay more for it. Uh, there's right. also uh, when you say, I don't want to lose this. Noel, have you heard of mostarda? It's not mustard.
1: Uh, I just I just I was over pronouncing mustard but no what tell tell me about it's it.
0: It's a it's a it does have a mustard flavored syrup but it's an Italian condiment made with candied fruit and mustard syrup. Mostarda.
1: Hmm. I know, I know, I know. not sure about that one.
0: <laughs> I know. I, uh, I'm on the fence about buying a bottle, but if we can call it for research purposes, I think mm-hmm. we should get together and try it before we, before we do the next episode, but agreed. Yeah. Awesome. Let's do it. Uh, the eyes have it. We'll go to mustard. Then we'll go to mayonnaise. Uh, and you know, we'll have to get hot sauce, which is probably going to be a two parter spoiler. Cause we got, we all have feelings about that one, but, uh, In the meantime, thank you so very much to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thank you to Henry J. Hines. Uh, Thank you to Alex Williams, who composed our track. Who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Oh, thanks for talking food with me, Noel. It's crazy that, like, sometimes we will just have food conversations, and then later we will go back and think, should we have recorded that? Should that have been an episode?
1: Hey, you know... There's always time to put that practice into praxis. Am I right? Uh,
0: there we go. Yeah, agreed. Uh and speaking of practice, we'll need to have our nemesis, Jonathan Strickland, aka
1: the Quister on air soon because he might be a little rusty. It's been so long. I know we'd really need to do that. I mean, it's not like it's it's not like we have pre-conversations with him about when these uh these drop-ins will occur. It's really up to him. I think the man's just been busy. Uh he really is a force of nature. And sort of like a spectre might haunt different uh well, actually specters usually kind of tend to stick to one location. So that wasn't a very good example, but it is actually Halloween today, and I tried. Uh point is he'll come when he'll come, and we will cower. Yeah. Yes, we will. We are
0: not cowards but we will indeed cower for cower for the quister uh, and along the way we'll thank Chris Rossi Steve's Jeff Coat and thanks to uh, you know what I'll say it I don't necessarily agree with the uh, militant stance of the Chicago hot dog but by god I respect him you got to have a code
1: well, and hey thanks to uh, our research associate on this episode you sir Mr. Ben Bola, oh, this, this is a real romp and a, and a gateway drug of sorts <laughs> into the wide world of condiments. Um, I look forward to it. I want to do one on relish. Yeah. We could do one on coleslaw. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just so many places we could go with this. We want to spread them out, obviously, uh, over time. But You want to for,
3: spread out the condiments? Yep, yep, you know, yep, yep, I yep. do,
1: Max, and I'm glad that you uh, took that opportunity and, and jumped right on in there with it. Um, but we will do just that. And until then, we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events, chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems
1: the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special.